welcome to episode 35 of This Week in FCPA for the week ending January 13th, 2017, the Friday the 13th edition. In this episode, I'm joined as always by Mr. Translations, Jay Rosen. Jay and I discuss the guilty pleas by two individuals, Mr. Hernandez and Beach, for bribing a PETAVESA or the Pet Venezuelan National Oil Company officials. We discuss the uh, VW guilty plea and its emission testing scandal and the individuals who were charged in that scandal. We talk about Oliver Schmidt, the VW executive arrested in the United States earlier this week. We discuss the Zimmer Biomet FCPA enforcement action follow-up. We talk about the Mondelez FCPA enforcement action. We discuss a Supreme Court case, which takes a look at whether the profit disgorgements are subject to a five-year statute of limitations, which apply to forfeitures, or appropriately a remedy under injunctions. We give our predictions on the NFL weekend division games. The episode comes in at a little over 35 minutes. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to thank you very much for listening to This Week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist. I'm joined by my good friend and colleague, Mr. Translations, Jay Rosen, for This Week in FCPA, the weekend of January 13th, appropriately named the Friday the 13th edition. Jay, uh, it's 82 today, and it never rains in Southern Texas, so welcome. It is um, a nippy 60 here in Southern California, and it's been raining here for the last week and a half. We're loving it. The only person who isn't loving it is Lakta the Wonder Dog, who has been having to uh, stay inside the house instead of going out on his long walks. Well, Jay, we've had uh, quite an interesting, significant, and busy week in the FCPA for the second week of January. No real blockbuster cases, as we saw in December. Nevertheless, I thought uh, some important cases that uh, enforcement actions and related information uh, that we should talk about this week. Of course, we have the divisional round of the playoffs this weekend, so we'll need to uh, pontificate on that. And uh, last week, we had uh, some subliminal messages about them Cowboys, and uh, this is the week where all that sublimination uh, comes to fore, hopefully. Well, I'm looking forward to a week of uh, competitive games, unlike last weekend. So uh, hopefully we get our wish and uh, we still continue on that collision course for uh, Cowboys and Patriots. So, Jay, we had a FCPA enforcement action against a company called Mondelez. Um, Mondelez is a uh, successor to the um, Kraft Foods Company, or formerly known as, and in uh, 2015, they acquired uh, Cadbury, a, a UK-based confectionery and snack beverage company, although I know them as the chocolate guys from the UK. And in that acquisition, they picked up a Indian subsidiary, appropriately named Cadbury India, who it turned out may have paid some bribes um, through an agent for permits in India. And the although the fine was relatively low, at least in FCPA standards of 13 million, I thought it was uh, quite interesting because there was no evidence that a fine was paid in this case excuse me, a, a bribe was paid in this case. And what the 
SEC, this was not a criminal enforcement action brought by the Department of Justice, but what the SEC found was that, number one, the books and records did not accurately reflect the nature of the services rendered by the agent without specifically saying that the agent paid uh, bribes. And then there was a second component under internal controls, which found that the agent could have could have uh, used the uh, payments made to it for the purposes of bribes, and there weren't sufficient internal controls to prevent that. Once again, the significance or really interesting thing is that uh, there's no evidence of bribes being paid laid out in the SEC complaint. So I thought that uh, we rarely have uh, these types of cases and where there's no uh evidence or, or even indicia of a bribe being paid. And so there's really only one other case that I could think of that was similar to this one, and that was um, back in 2012, I think, uh, Oracle was uh, sanctioned by the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, for having a subsidiary which parked a portion of its proceeds from certain sales to, uh, Indian, to the Indian government, <clears throat> and the money could have been used for unauthorized purposes. So basically we have a situation where an agent is clear, the agent did not go through appropriate due diligence. There's no exception granted, which would allow the agent to go through um, and become a distributor or excuse me, an agent without due diligence. Nevertheless, uh, there's no, um, no real evidence that uh, a bribe was paid, although there was, you know, you. Perhaps you could guess that. Nevertheless, that was not the allegation brought forward. For me, the significance of this case was that uh, you actually have to do compliance. And if you have an agent or a distributor and they're paid money, you actually have to go audit and see how they're using the funds. The agent was paid, um, I think, a little over 600, excuse me, $100,000 over a period of six months. And the money was taken out in cash by the agent. And from that point, there was no uh, audit trail as to what the money was used for. So I think it's a pretty important lesson for companies uh, that they have to have audit rights. They have to actually exercise those audit rights. They have to monitor their third parties. And that uh, India is a country which may bear some scrutiny if you have a, a business unit there or you operate through a third-party representative such as an agent or a distributor so that you may need to take a look at that. Uh, if you were uh, a compliance officer uh, with a company with such uh, business operation. And, you know, I would also want to look at it from the other way, Tom, that quite often we talk about, you know, doing compliance and doing the due diligence, but in this situation, it was under the context of an M&A transaction. So um, one of the things where I believe Mondelez was rewarded is once they began the integration of the companies, they uh, started to find out that there was an issue in India. Uh, they investigated, they began to remediate, and they took care of it. So I think a lot of times, you know, not only do you need to be responsible for the, those third party and agents, you know, when you're running your company and if you have overseas operations and branches, but particularly even more so within an M&A context. And, uh, you know, I, I think there's, maybe similarities here to like Alstom and uh, General Electric. So if, if you're going to be doing an acquisition, 
And when you start doing your due diligence, at the same time, you should be really doing some ethics and compliance and FCPA due diligence. And what you might find out in the, those investigations is that this may be a company that you don't want to acquire, or I would guess in the, uh, you know, in the case of GE and Allstem, they uh, started to factor in some of the costs for remediation, and that allowed them to reprice the deal in a more favorable manner. You, you raise a great point, Jay, because I've focused on the uh, accounting uh, provision violations of the FCPA, but you reminded everyone, uh, myself included, in addition to our listeners, of the need to do pre-acquisition due diligence and then post-acquisition uh, auditing of your compliance program. And unfortunately for Mondelez, the uh, SEC complaint specifically noted that Mondelez engaged in an internal investigation uh, around Agent 1, but post-acquisition due diligence did not identify the relationship between the agent in question, which was identified as agent number one in this SEC complaint, and Careberry India. So uh, it looked like a, a whistleblower or other uh, tip came into Mondelez, which allowed them to uh, make this determination and, and lead to the agent's termination. But uh, you've got to do a, a, a adequate job either in your pre-acquisition due diligence or hopefully in your pre-acquisition due diligence, but most certainly in your uh, post-acquisition uh, FCPA audit and integration. So lots of lessons uh, from this uh, case, um, even though, once again, we have to emphasize there was no evidence laid out in the SEC complaint that bribes had been paid. So we also had um, something that's rarely seen, Jay, this week. We had a, um, a two-time loser pop up. A company that was under a deferred prosecution agreement was found to have engaged in additional FCPA violations. It's a fairly long and complicated and tortured matter, but it's uh, Zimmer Biomet Holdings. Uh, Biomet had sustained a... Uh, uh, FCPA charge back in March 2012 and paid $23 million to settle that enforcement action, had entered into a DPA uh, and retained a compliance monitor for three years. And maybe you could pick it up from there. Um, so after they've, you know, started to meet the levels of the DPA, um, something came up again uh, with uh, once the new two companies were merged and um, they were not at that point living up to the terms of the DPA. So again, uh, they started to uh, run an internal investigation, started to take uh, steps to remediate, but by falling out of the terms of the DPA, uh, they need to enter into a whole new set of agreements. So I guess that gets you uh, back to our initial uh, um, statement about them being a two-time loser. So, Jay, uh, actually, I work for a company that um, had was found to have sustained additional FCPA violations while under a deferred prosecution agreement. And from that experience, uh, I can tell you that uh, the Department of Justice does not look favorably upon companies that engage in FCPA violations after having signed a DPA promising never to engage in FCPA violations. And I often reflect back to my views 
as a teenage boy and what I might want to tell my parents about what I was going to do uh, when I went out at night. And it was generally along the lines of I would uh, not seek permission, but I would ask for forgiveness after the fact. As the father of a teenage daughter, now former teenage daughter, uh, my views on that have evolved. And they have evolved to I would prefer to be asked permission first rather than um, sought uh, forgiveness after the fact. So that's similar to what the DOJ, uh, I think, feels. And um, they certainly do not take kindly on this. Biomet uh, had their original DPA extended. Uh, the monitor uh, did, was not able to report that the company had uh, successfully completed the terms of the uh, DPA. And now they get a fine and penalty of uh, really a little over twice what they originally paid. So a very expensive lesson. Um, if your company is under a DPA, uh, you have got to uh, make sure you don't have additional FCPA violations. Now, but if I can maybe take a step back, if there were not new FCPA uh, violations, but it was continuing conduct which should have been discovered in the original internal investigation. That's also an important lesson to be learned that when you investigate your company, uh, you need to uncover everything and you need to turn it over to the government at once because I suspect if had uh, Biomet done that, then uh, the fine and penalty would have been far less than the sum total of 30 million plus 13 million. Uh, but because they did not find out or the new, our new conduct popped up, then uh, we had this, this new and significant fine. Uh, once again, though, Jay, we have uh, M&A here where Zimmer bought Biomet, and Zimmer's on the hook for this. So even though they may try to pay it out of a Biomet business unit, it's all one company now. And to your earlier discussion about the importance of pre-acquisition due diligence, the importance of post-acquisition integration and FCPA audit. Uh, the um, Mondelez and Zimmer case really speak to that issue uh, just this week. So um, we, we now have some individuals who have uh, gotten some guilty pleas and, uh, you know, have also been held accountable for actions. Um, do you want to, should we take... Um, VW uh, first, or do you want to do Hernandez and Beach? Let me do Hernandez and Beach since we're on an FCPA roll. Okay. So we have two, two individuals plead guilty, uh, one in Houston and one in Miami, around bribes paid by U.S. citizens to uh, Petavesa, which is the Venezuelan national oil company. And uh, it's really one of the most corrupt uh, national oil companies around. Uh, I think uh, even uh, Petrobras would pale besides Petavesa. Uh, the joke was that it, it took a, a Rolex to get a meeting with a mid-level manager. Um, so that, uh, unfortunately, when that's the <clears throat> perceived to be the archetypal story, uh, there's generally some truth behind it. But here we had two men paying money, uh, wire transferring and paying cash in certain instances to Venezuelan officials paid out of bank accounts into the U, uh, from the U.S. So we had, uh, with Mr. Hernandez, relatively small amounts 
9,000, one amount of 14,000, and then uh, uh, another of uh, a little over 1,000. Uh, Mr. Beach paid a little bit more money um, of uh, 132,000 in one, one payment and 15,000 in another payment. They are allegedly cooperating with the United States government, so we'll have to see how that might uh, uh, shake out for their um, jail time at their sentencing. And the um, government press release noted ominously that the um, its investigation of Petabasa uh, is still ongoing. Uh, all of this means if you're a U.S. company and you have done business with Petabasa over the past 10 years, uh, you need to uh, make sure your your house is in order. You need to do a very focused internal audit and investigation around uh, all of your employees who dealt with Petabasa, any third parties you may have had, uh, because one of the um, uh, both Beach and Hernandez made bribe payments to get bills paid, outstanding invoices, and. Uh, that's uh, obviously very frustrating when you can't get your money out of a, a, a contractor or a co country or a company. But if you've got to pay bribes to get bills paid, uh, that may we've seen that conduct before with ADM in the Ukraine. So um, I would just urge you, if you've done business with PETAVESA or indeed with the Venezuelan government over the past 10 years, you need to get ready for a country sweep now. And uh, which ones of our friends did you suggest that might want to, uh, that should be called in these situations? Uh, Matt Ellis at Miller and Chevalier. Yes, who has a great book that's out too. And, uh, you know, he, he is a, a trilingual expert, so he's somebody who should be reached out to. In uh, the other case that we're going to look at, uh, it caused a little, um, I guess a little bit of a, a, a blip within the compliance community because uh, Oliver Schmidt, who was, uh, I guess, uh, an emissions compliance person at Volkswagen working here in the U.S., but also uh, going back and forth to Wolfsburg, was uh, getting ready to take a vacation and was arrested in Miami International Airport. And... Um, you know, I guess the the um, you know the 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 fear that was raised here is that uh, a compliance executive was arrested and was you know going to be tried. And uh, I guess the one thing that we need to really be um, focused on is that term compliance does not mean that uh, Mr. Schmidt was a chief compliance officer, but he was involved in the emissions compliance department. And his duties were supposed to make sure that Volkswagen's products con, uh, con, uh, I guess, conformed to the EPA standards. And instead, he was one of the individuals who were responsible for subverting those standards and for coming up with the defeat switch. And not only did he do this in the U.S., but he went back to the home office in Germany and informed them on the plan and uh, perpetrated it even further. So um, I know Roy Snell quickly hopped on the Internet and, and made a, a demarcation about the type of compliance executive that Mr. Schmidt was. But, um, you know, I think this is all a good development and it still furthers along um, the goals of what we're doing, whether it's from a FCPA or, or fraud perspective, but to find 
um, you know, the individuals who are involved. So this furthers on, um, you know, what, what's been happening for the last 18 to 24 months in our FCPA part of the world. So uh, let me just uh, build on that, Jay, because Mike Volkoff was very clear, uh, really in another direction, which was, and of course, Mike's an ex-prosecutor, and he said, it really doesn't matter what your title is. If you're a chief compliance officer and you engage in illegal conduct, you're going to be prosecuted, or at least you're subject to being prosecuted. So uh, even if one accepts the title of compliance submissions officer, um, while Roy Snell's correct that it's not an anti-corruption compliance officer, if you engage in illegal conduct, simply that title of chief compliance officer is not going to protect you, and the, and the um, Department of Justice is not going to target you uh, for non-criminal conduct. The other thing is that of the individuals charged, uh, they were generally involved with a cover-up. They were not part of the team that developed the defeat device. All of them, uh, the couple of engineers involved, started after 2006 when it was initially installed. So this team was a part of the cover-up, and Schmidt's conduct was particularly egregious when you consider that in 2014, when he first found out about it, his question was, uh, are, are we telling the truth? If we're not, we have to continue to lie. And then he took that message to VW management, who tacitly or expressly approved it. And then uh, he disseminated, or dissembled rather, when he met with the uh, EPA and California Air Board uh, in 2015. So uh, he was uh, directly involved in the cover-up at the corporate headquarters. He was directly involved in making misstatements to U.S. regulators. And um, all uh, along the lines of the cover-up is much worse than uh, the original crime. So we had the active involvement uh, by VW executives. From the criminal procedure perspective, it's, it's just mind-boggling that Schmidt would travel to the United States when he was uh, under investigation. He had counsel. He had met with the Department of Justice in London. Um, obviously, he had worked out some deal so that he would not be extradited from England. Uh, but here in the United States, uh, he's subject to full U.S. Uh, law enforcement jurisdiction. He has been arrested in Miami. He was transferred to Detroit. His bail was denied. He's looking at 167 years in jail. Um, so I don't know who advised him to, to come here or what uh, allowed him to think he would be safe in doing so. But um, I think that uh, VW, as I wrote this week, Jay, VW executives may be vacationing at home this year. Because uh, if you'll recall, uh, we had a case um, with BizJet. The CEO was indicted, uh, skipped out to, to uh, Germany, and uh, decided to take a vacation and book tra uh, travel through Amsterdam. And at Schiphol Airport, he was arrested and extradited. So uh, Germany does not extradite its citizens generally. But uh, once you leave Germany, you may be subject to uh, some pretty severe sanctions. Maybe Mr. Schmidt had recently watched an episode of The Force Awakens, and as he was walking through the airport, he was sending out this subliminal message, this is not the FCPA cover-up artist that you're looking for. Um, hopefully he was not saying go Cowboys when he was doing that. <laughs> I, I, I thought I'd get a, a kick drum or a snare on that one. So uh, you want to quickly do um, the Supreme Court? and um, uh, the SEC, and then we'll do our playoff predictions. 
How about some deep breaths from Darth Vader himself? So we had a, uh, today, in fact, as uh, the day we're recording, we had an announcement that the Supreme Court has agreed to uh, determine whether the SEC is subject to time limitations when seeking ill-gotten gains in the form of profit disgorgement. And this is a, for you lawyers listening to this, this is a, just a, a great geek out um, in the weeds legal issue that basically turns on whether profit disgorgement is a remedy uh, appropriate under the injunction prong that the uh, SEC has available to it, or if it's under the forfeiture, forfeiture prong. If it's under the injunction prong, there's no statute of limitations on how far back the SEC can go for profit disgorgement. If it's, however, ruled to be a forfeiture, uh, there is a five-year statute of limitations. Um, uh, Mark Bong at uh, Miller & Chevalier is really one of the leading commentators on profit disgorgement. I've talked to him about the uh, underlying courts of appeals cases. I may have to get him back, but um, how it applies, Jay, in the FCPA world is the Department of Justice and SEC take the position that you have to give back all of your profits from the moment the corruption began. So if that's multiple years, or certainly before, and that could be five years, 10 years, anything in between, it could go back 20 years. Uh, so it can and really add up to a lot of money. And of course, the SEC charges interest upon that. It's not tax deductible. So it's a, a pretty significant question. We have a split in the circuits. The 11th Circuit has taken the position that uh, profit disgorgement is a forfeiture and therefore subject to the five-year statute of limitations. We've got the uh, 10th Circuit, the D.C. Circuit, and one other one um, who have said that uh, profit disgorgement on the First Circuit properly in, falls as a remedy under the injunction prong. So this could be uh, pretty significant for FCPA enforcement, although the case that's going up is uh, about a uh, New Mexico investors investment advisors appeal, uh, not an FCPA case. So uh, very interesting, and uh, hopefully I'm sure we'll have a decision uh, sometime in 2017 on that and may clarify a question, an open question, and one that's been uh, split between the circuits. So... Um, um, I think How about got football uh, this weekend. Yeah, tell me about this uh, sixteen-point spread. How did that happen? Well, uh, if anyone's listening to this, I rarely give out uh, betting advice, but at sixteen points, bet everything you got on the Patriots. Um, uh, the uh, I, I'm thinking of twenty-one to twenty-five point spreads, probably more appropriate, uh, because uh, while playing the Patriots' former third-string quarterback. The Patriots lost 27 nothing the first time. So Texans. Um, the, uh, uh, it, I would say it's going to be a bloodbath, but I don't think Belichick will run the score up. Uh, hopefully the Texans will show up, but they didn't show up the first time. Uh, they've never showed up in a playoff game, uh, or at least under O'Brien, they haven't showed up in a playoff game. So uh, who knows uh, what they'll do. Uh, unfortunately, I'm reminded of um, – 1978-1979 Houston Oilers, when they had the second-best team in the AFC and went to Pittsburgh two years in a row for the AFC Championship. Unfortunately, the best team was Pittsburgh. Uh, the first year they went, they were absolutely destroyed by Pittsburgh, uh, and Pittsburgh went on to win the Super Bowl. The second year, they were competitive and indeed probably lost by a blown uh, call 
where Mike Grinfo did not uh, get credit for a touchdown in the end zone. But um, Houston uh, professional football has long been uh, known for uh, being blown out in playoffs. As the uh, Oilers have the record for uh, losing the biggest comeback, uh, I think 16 points is probably too low. So uh, my money is on the Patriots this weekend. So those teams in the 70s, was that uh, the Snake Stabler or was that Dan Pastorini? 78 was Pastorini. 79 was Stabler. Wow. See, I can occasionally make this mind uh, come up with some good information, so I'm I'm glad that came through. Uh, The other AFC game, uh, I think it'll be close. I think it's about a three-point spread. Um, There's some statistic on how um, uh, Andy, what's his last name, the uh, case? Yeah, there is some stat that he's incredibly successful after a bye week that he will just game plan the heck out of this. Um, I think both quarterbacks are really talented. I think Smith gets a little bit of a bum rap as a game manager, but I look for that to be a highly entertaining game. And I think, uh, you know, it's tough to win at Arrowhead. So I think I would give the nod to Casey. So uh, my only thoughts are there's a reason Mike Tomlin has been to three Super Bowls. There's a reason Ben Roethlisberger has been to three Super Bowls. Pittsburgh has one of the best organizations in the National Football League, uh, perhaps not as great as New England right now, but nonetheless very close. Um, I'm uh, As much as it pains me to say this, I'm uh, my money's on Pittsburgh in that game. Okay. Uh, you want to do Big D now, or you want to go to the undercard Seattle? I'll go to the undercard. Okay. Um, I somehow think that when Seattle gets into the playoffs, they're a team that uh, can leverage their experience from having been there before. And although Matt Ryan is having a great year, um, I like the Seattle defense with the exception of one of the safeties that they're missing. But uh, I think, again, that's a close game. But I, uh, I see Seattle winning. You know, I'm going to join you on that one. Uh, Matty Ice may have ice in his veins, but the, the Falcons tend to be chokers. Uh, for those betting, uh, the spread is five points, which I think is way too much. Uh, obviously, Russell Wilson's not at his peak this year, and the safety you mentioned being out is University of Texas grad Earl Thomas, which definitely negatively impacts the uh, Seattle secondary. Nevertheless, uh, I'm going to go with uh, with your leaning. I think Seattle has uh, more playoff experience. They certainly have more Super Bowl experience, and I think they're going to answer the bell in Atlanta. All right, and what you've all been waiting for is Tom Fox's pick on the Dallas-Green Bay game. This, this has been a historic uh, rivalry over the past three decades or so, so uh, I think this could be a little bit of a changing of the guard here uh, if Dak is able to uh, take down the Packers. Unfortunately, Jay, you're showing your uh, legs of youth. It's uh, five decades of rivalry. Uh, So uh, the pontificators have surprised me that they are leaning on uh, Green Green Bay and having, uh, of course, the greatest quarterback on the planet right now, Aaron Rodgers leaving them with their playoff experience. But uh, Jordy Nelson's hurt, um, and uh, he's Rodgers' top receiver. 
I think Ezekiel Elliott, Elliott will continue to control the line of scrimmage. And if it gets into a 38-35 shootout, I think Rodgers probably has uh, the advantage. But if the Cowboys can control the ball 55 to 60 percent of the time, uh, they'll have a more balanced offense, passing and running. And uh, I think the Cowboys take it at home. And just promise me, if it comes down to a field goal, that Roma will not be holding. We can only hope. <laughs> All right. So that's uh, that's our playoff picks. Um, as Tom said at the beginning, uh, we are just into the second week of January 2017. Lots happening in our FCPA ethics and compliance part of the world. And um, we will start to see changes next week when uh, the president-elect Trump takes over. So it'll be uh, a very interesting week next. And I look forward to uh, joining you and discussing things next Friday. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week in FCPA. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate it as it would help in our rankings. And if you have any questions you'd like Jay and I to explore, please shoot me an email with them and we'll put them in a mailbag episode. My email is tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to This Week in FCPA. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.